Welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and on today's episode, we sit down with Blake Mykoski. He's the founder of Tom Shoes and more recently Made For, as well as a few other successful ventures which we dive into. We talk about everything from his upbringing and being a top tennis player in the country while on his way to going pro, how an Achilles injury in college completely changed the trajectory of his life, the valuable lessons he's learned from his successes and failures, the trip to Argentina that sparked the idea for Tom's, why he walked away from the business after eight years when the company was doing about a half a billion in sales, the toxic side of the public acclaim he had received throughout his career, and why he ultimately started Made For, his current business. If you're interested in giving Made For a try, we have a unique discount for our listeners. Go to getmadefor.com and use the code FOUNDERHOUR for 20% off. There's so much incredible insight and knowledge packed into this episode, coupled with Blake's extremely unique entrepreneurial story. So we hope you enjoy. Here we go. Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me if I got my kind of entrepreneurial tendencies uh, as a child. And, and to some degree, yes. I mean, I had, you know, the lemonade stand, the cookie, you know, business, those typical things. But I actually think it really was more uh, directly correlated to um, how much I was focused on being a great tennis player growing up. I started playing tennis when I was like eight years old um, and became one of the top players in the state and then later in the country. And I ended up moving away from home, living at a tennis academy, pretty much dedicating all of my, you know, kind of youth to playing tennis. And tennis as an individual sport, I think, is a great preparation for being an entrepreneur because you're not, you know, relying on anyone but yourself. Um, and it's incredibly, com- you know, competitive. And so, you know, really from age eight to say 20, my whole life was basically training uh, and playing tennis tournaments. And was the goal to become a professional tennis player and basically, you know, travel around the world playing? I mean, and, and what happened, you know, if, yeah. if that was the goal, what did happen? And because you clearly didn't end up doing that. <laughs> yeah. And it actually leads to my entrepreneurial life. So, yes, that was the goal. I went to college on tennis scholarship um, and my sophomore year, I had a bad injury to my Achilles tendon and um, I was basically in a full leg cast for for several months. Um, and about three weeks into that experience, um, one of the problems with being in a full leg cast and living in a dormitory is I couldn't carry my laundry down to the laundry facility at the bottom of the dorm. Now, that might not sound like a big deal now because there's a lot of companies uh, that will come and pick up and deliver your laundry. But back then, there wasn't. And I, I had this very distinct memory of actually looking in the yellow pages because this is pre-Google, and uh, looking for someone to come pick up and do my laundry because it was literally piling up in my dorm room, and uh, nothing like that existed. And that was a few days before Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving, I was uh, with my roommate at the time at their house, and his dad was uh, very entrepreneurial. And as I was explaining the problem with my laundry, he said to us, you guys should start a laundry business. And I grew up with a dad that was a doctor and my grandfather was a doctor and really a long lineage of healthcare professionals. Um, my dad's very entrepreneurial, but at that stage, I really hadn't been around business people. And so this idea of starting a business was very exotic and fun. And it also was going to serve you know, one of the uh, needs that I had, uh, like most entrepreneurial ventures typically do. And so, yeah, my roommate and I started this thing called Easy Laundry, where we picked up and delivered people's laundry. 
And uh, that was my first entrepreneurial venture and also the end of my tennis career. Was it devastating for you that after, you know, 12 plus or 15 plus years of playing tennis that suddenly it had come to an end and there was really nothing else that you had set your mind to? Or was it more so, you know, this is what life dealt me. I'm just going to kind of move on and, you know, figure something out. I mean, what was your mentality like? Because I know a lot of people that whether they're transitioning careers or whether they're trying to go from, you know, a, you know, a job to being an entrepreneur or from going from high school to college, they're confused, right? They don't really know what's ahead. Yeah. So they get depressed, they get sad, they get anxious. What was your uh, mental state like and how did you deal with all that? You know, the thing is, is that I... It happened so quickly that I really didn't have a lot of time to sit back and like do deep thinking about it. But what I did find very quickly is a lot of the things I loved about being a competitive athlete um, translate into being an entrepreneur. Like, you know, I had to be, you know, really focused on the business. I was competitive because after about six months into starting the business, there was another company that was trying to get laundry customers on our campus as well. Um, so a lot of what I spent my whole life doing with tennis translated pretty quickly to being an entrepreneur. So I didn't find that I had like a period of time to even stop and reflect. It was just, I went from one thing to the next, which I think you hear about a lot with entrepreneurs. Yeah. Right. Totally. So you launch easy laundry and, you know, you've never been an entrepreneur before you're 20 years old, still in college at SMU. What is that like? I mean, was it an automatic hit where people were like, this is what we've been waiting for? Or was it an uphill battle? It was a total uphill battle. Uh, and for a very funny reason, actually. Um, most of our uh, customers were people in the fraternities and sororities on campus. And uh, we very quickly realized that most of the girls didn't want to sign up because they didn't want me to see their panties. <laughs> which was really funny because I wasn't doing the laundry myself. I was just doing the pickup and delivery. So I literally had to take out an ad in the school newspaper with some funny, you know, picture and saying about, you know, I don't, I don't look at your panties or something. It was really ridiculous, but that was a big, that was one of the issues. Um, and the other issue was, is just that like, and you're like at a, it was such a new, and you're like at a Methodist university. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, no, I mean it, it was it was a, a little bit of an uphill battle that first semester. I'll tell you what our big break was, and this is interesting because I think this is a great lesson for all business people is like really knowing your customer, right? So I assumed that our customer was the students because they're the ones who no longer have to do their laundry when they sign up. But I was wrong. The students were less interested. It was actually the parents of incoming freshmen that were our main customer. Because when we were set up at the beginning of like where they bought their books and got all their stuff registered, once we started setting up there and got permission from the school to do so, that's when our business took off. Because parents, especially of this kind of you know wealthy private school, were like so concerned that their kids were going to ruin all their nice clothes by not doing their laundry very well. They'd never really done it before. And so the parents were the ones who were our best customers and signing their kids up. I'm curious when you first started it, um, and I'm not sure if you mentioned like what your major was when you were in college, but um, were you like, did you have an idea of how to even run a business or was it something that you just kind of just dove into it and you learned kind of how, by doing? 
Yeah, totally learning by doing. I mean, my major really when I went to college was to become a professional tennis player. And then I guess my minor was philosophy. So I had no interest in business. Like I wasn't going anywhere near the business school. Um, and so, yeah. you know, it was more of just like, you know, learning by doing. And the funny thing is, I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur was until three or four months into launching the laundry business. Someone said to me, oh, wow, like you're a young entrepreneur or that's very entrepreneurial. And I had to literally look up the definition of the word. Mm, that's funny. I know you ultimately ended up selling easy laundry because um, you had done what? One million in sales. Was it a good exit for you? I mean, or was it something that you kind of regret now? Oh, no, it was it was a good exit. And it was fun to make a little bit of money uh, at such a young age. I mean, I was 20 years old at the time. Uh, and it kind of helped me, you know, kind of give, have some confidence to go do other entrepreneurial ventures. So uh, it's still, but the, but the, you know, the cool thing is I started that business 25 years ago, actually it's 25th year and it's still operating today. Oh, wow. Mm. Has it expanded? I mean, who, or is it just kind of still the same? Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's changed hands to a couple of bigger companies. And now, um, and, and these companies not only do laundry, but they get into like, you know, cleaning of uniforms and stuff in, in Dallas. And, and right. now it's, I think, about five different universities. And it's part of a bigger organization now. But, but still, whenever I go to Dallas, I see those trucks operating. Why do you think that is? I'm curious. Like, you know, obviously, you know, we see a lot of businesses come and go. And, and this space, you know, we've seen a lot of innovation over the last 25 years, too. Do you think it's just, do you think it was like the idea and like the execution of it and what you were focused on, like the sort of niche segment of, of students at the time that made it such a long stand, you know, standing sustainable business or, or was it just kind of over time, the right people got a hold of it and were able to continue it? No, I think it's, and this is what I would say has been kind of one of the things that I've been lucky at in a lot of my businesses is that they've kind of connected into a cultural experience. And so I think what happened was, after the first, you know, four or five years of me running the business, it got very ingrained that when you go to SMU, you know, you sign up, you get your books, you sign up for this, and you sign up for the laundry service. It just became like a thing. Like it's not even a, you know, it just it it didn't really become a a question. And so just culturally, SMU's a campus or Vanderbilt's a campus or you know whatever these University of Texas has these services, and you know, and I think it just is like you know, oh, I, they'd ask the older classmen, oh yeah, I use it, it's great. And so I think, yeah, we had to provide a good service, but I think it was less about, you know, kind of killer execution and more about just that it became part of the culture of being a freshman in college. Blake, you know, how, how, knowing a little bit about your background and story, because, you know, we've listened to podcasts and read about you, unlike other founders, you've had so many different periods in your entrepreneurial journey. You know, it's been one venture after another, after another, and you're only, you know, in your early forties and I'm sure that's still continuing. So you know, kind of going to the point of after college or after college entrepreneurial period, you know, what was that like? What did you do? You had sold a business. What did you launch something new? Yeah, one of the, I'd say that the, the two things that really characterize myself entrepreneurially that I think is different based on biographies and podcasts and other things I've read about other entrepreneurs and founders is I've kind of, it's actually funny. It's almost like someone who like is, um, always has to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. <laughs> you know, as soon as they break up right, with one, they right. go into the next one. That's how my business life has been. Yeah. There, there hasn't been like long periods of being a bachelor. Um, so it, almost every business idea that I've had, 
I had while I was operating the other business or closing it down if it wasn't working or selling it if it was. So it really hasn't been like these long periods of, of except actually with Made For. So I know we're going to get into Made For lately, but Made For was much more um, part of a personal journey that I was on when I had some you know kind of inner struggles and got diagnosed with mild depression and some other stuff that happened to me. But that led to a period of calmness and and kind of uh, inner work and 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 kind of uh, you know really kind of taking a pause, which then led to Made For. So Made For is really the only business that didn't come out of another business. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been I went from the laundry business to the outdoor advertising business, outdoor advertising business to uh, launching a cable television channel. That failing, but through the failing of that, launching an online driver's ed company. Uh, and then ultimately from driver's ed company, went on a trip to Argentina that led to Tom's. And then Tom's obviously was a lo- my longest business. I mean, really, I-, I ran it for over a decade before I kind of got burnout and started looking at doing other things. And in that two-year period of kind of the burnout and soul searching is when I started practicing uh, what ultimately became the Made For program. So that's kind of how my you know, entrepreneurial life has flowed. And I know that's quite different than others because especially because all those businesses have really nothing to do with each other. I'm curious with you, oftentimes, you know, uh, an entrepreneur, there's a few different ways of, of identifying an idea or a problem or something to start a business around, right? Like one is you see sort of a gap in the marketplace. There's a, you know, customer segment that's underserved and you can, you know, create a solution for them. The other is a pain point, right? Solving, solving a solution um, for a problem. And another is like just sort of what what inspires you and just kind of there isn't really like a business segment or something that you could create a business around, but it's just something that you have a passion for and you want to just start. For for you, like how did you go about? It's it sounds like all your different businesses were like in different verticals, almost different, completely oh, totally. different industries. So how did you go about completely finding these like finding these ideas and and pursuing them? Well, I think the biggest, the only consistent thing about all the businesses is that I had absolutely zero experience in any of the industries when I started. So I had no experience in laundry, no experience in outdoor advertising, no experience in a television channel, no experience in shoes, no experience in online education, and definitely no experience on you know, creating a wellness company to help people live their best lives. So the way that I went about it really was personal experiences that I had that I either got inspired by or that I had a personal pain point myself. Um, so, you know, I got inspired by the fact that, um, you know, that there were these children in Argentina that didn't have shoes and I felt like I could help them. Um, and I had discovered a shoe there that I really loved myself. So that was kind of a combination of a personal experience that I wanted to bring the shoe to America and I wanted to help these kids. You know, with the driver's ed company, for instance, that was a conversation I had with a 15-year-old boy who was a son of a woman that worked for me at the cable channel that was in the process of closing down. And he was talking about his driver's ed experience as if it was like worse than going to detention. And I thought, gosh, that's not good. I mean, this is a child, you know, 15-year-old boy learning to drive on a, on a highway that I, I frequent a lot in Los Angeles. I hope that he's paying more attention than what it sounds like. How can I teach kids to drive in a way that would be more fun and exciting and create better drivers on the road? So really everyone has kind of come from a personal experience 
Um, but as you point out, none of them had any uh, similarities in terms of the verticals or the industries that they were born out of. Right. And what I was kind of getting at was like everyone has ideas, right? Ideas are just floating around and probably someone that, you know, an idea that you have for a business someone else has had before and really comes down to execution and actually making it happen. Right. And so for you, like yeah. you, you have this, you know, you get inspired by this pain point or, or you see something going on where like I can build a solution for that. What do you do next? Like, what's your next step? Because you, you don't know anything about it. Are you, are you doing a bunch of like research and trying to figure out, you know, is the business viable and this and that? Or are you just taking a little bit more of a, I don't know, grassroots, just like, I'm just going to start it and see what happens. Yeah. For me, it's always been more of not necessarily research, but informal friend, family focus groups. Like I love sharing my ideas with people. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs, I feel like get very paranoid when they have a new idea. And so what they start thinking about is, like, oh, I don't want to tell anyone because someone's going to steal my idea or this or that. I've been the exact opposite. If I have an idea, I want to tell every person I know about it and get immediate feedback as to whether they think it's a good idea or not. And that's been kind of, so I guess you could say at some level that's research, but I've never done it in a systematic way. I've done it more in an intuitive way. And if I tell people my idea and I'm getting a lot of positive feedback, or I would love to buy a pair of those shoes, or I would love to learn those practices and habits that have transformed your life through Made For. Like those are the things that I'm hearing. Now with Made For, I think because I'm a little bit further along in my entrepreneurial journey and I have maybe more resources to really fine tune something before launching it, you know, we spent a full year and did a beta test on 1300 people from all different backgrounds and all 50 states to make sure that the program was really effective in changing people's lives. So that's the only time that I've really kind of taken my time and really done kind of deep, deep testing before launching something. Blake, you know, this podcast, we've been doing it for almost three years. And, you know, one of the coolest things about it is, you know, every founder has a story. And then within those stories, there are sub stories. And I think sure. what's really great is when we have, when our listeners are, listening to these sub stories they can connect it to their lives right and they can say oh you yeah. know we've had something similar to this idea or we've had something similar why not just kind of go for it and you know we've seen a lot of those go stories where we've through this podcast inspired people so you know i do want to kind of go and break down some of your sub stories and you know starting with let's say the advertising company that you started and you know you sold that in nine months right we talk about things not being an overnight success i would consider that an overnight success right what was the idea? How did you make it happen? And why the hell was it so successful so fast? Yeah. So, I mean, I think two things. One is um, the nine months is a little misleading because that was nine months from once we actually got launched. It took me a full year right. to convince the city council members to let me do it. Um, so the idea was this <laughs> simple, is that I recognized that in Los Angeles and in New York, there are these major, massive advertising on the sides of buildings. But in most cities in the country, that did not exist. There were just traditional billboards. And I realized that the only one of the main reasons, especially in Los Angeles, that people spent this much money to put someone on the side of a building was it was very ego-driven. It was the heads of the studios wanting their movie or their actor or their actress to be on the side of the building when they drove to work every day. So I had this hypothesis that Nashville, Tennessee, where all country music stars live, would also have very big egos around managers and agents and artists. And if I could get one of the top artists on the side of a building, 
all the artists would want to have their face on the side of a building. So that was the premise. The hard part was is that they it was illegal to do so. So I had to convince the city council that I wasn't creating just you know mass advertising like you know going to put Bud Light ads up on the sides of buildings, but I was actually creating country music art. So I reframed the conversation and the pitch, and that's what you sometimes have to do if you have someone you're trying to sell to. In a sense, I was selling to city council, and I said, "Look, we're the we're the country music capital of the world." How cool would it be when you drive downtown instead of seeing, you know, brick buildings or gray buildings or whatever, you saw the country music stars who've made this town so famous and they loved that idea. And so there were restrictions. I couldn't put any type of advertisement. It could only be art, but I could put their cover of their new albums. And this is when we still all bought CDs. And so the cover of an album was a really important part of advertising it. And so I tied up the buildings with the owners. I got city council to approve it. And then once I did launch, it was kind of an overnight success, but it was a year worth of work to kind of get to that place so that I could uh, legally do it. And as we all know, um, I think Clear Channel was the company that acquired it, right? Yep. Um, we, you know, I, I hear a lot of entrepreneurs, like when they're, when they're starting a, or when they have an idea and they want to start a business, oftentimes one of the reasons why they might not pursue it is because they might think, you know, a larger company can just easily copy us and do this as soon as they get wind of it. And we're just going to be left in the dust and that's it. And, and this was something that obviously, you know, it was different and it was unique, but I can't imagine like a clear channel or some, one of these bigger companies, like why, like why, why do you think that they, they came and acquired your company as opposed to, competing with you like what was something that was different or or special about it that they 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 would rather acquire than just completely come out and copy you and and destroy you yeah really simple 10-year contracts with the landlords so you know i had 10-year contracts with the landlords of the buildings and yeah i'm sure they could have tried to strong arm the landlords and tried to you know but it was just much easier to buy out the contracts for me um, but yeah, in, in, in a lot of cases, without those contracts, they definitely would have done that. Makes sense. I think there's two good lessons there. Number one, try not to deal with the government. And number two, <laughs> sign long-term <laughs> contracts if possible. Right? Yeah. Just because I think this is so important for entrepreneurs listening. When you're, when you're starting out and you don't have uh, a lot of confidence or you don't have a lot of leverage, it's easy to want to have your business or your idea succeed so much that you cut corners. It would have been easy. I wanted those ads to be on those buildings so bad that I could have just gone landlord and said, just give me a one-year deal. But a one-year deal wouldn't have been a good business. It would have been good for my ego. I would have made a little bit of money. But if I was going to invest all this, I needed to have those contracts. So my point there is, if you believe in something, be willing to you know, kind of play the long game and do it right so that you can have a good exit versus just trying to get into business and cutting corners. That's a good, that's a good lesson. I know that after you sold it, you kind of tried to do something fun. You and your sister applied for Survivor and then, you know, the, the production team said, you know what, we got this other show called The Amazing Race. You know, you get to win a million dollars if you win. What was that experience like? I know you didn't win, but what yeah. was that? what was that like? Oh, it's one of the great experiences of my life. I mean, I got to travel around the world for 30 days with my sister in a 
fierce competition that I loved. Um, we lost the million dollars only by four minutes after 30 days of racing. So that was a little bit heartbreaking. Um, but I got to see all these cultures. I got to have experiences I never would have had before. Um, yeah, I mean, that was truly one of the great experiences of my life. How do people put themselves in those positions, not just to be on the amazing race, but to gain those experiences, right? Like you said, you met a lot of different cultures and got to experience a lot of different things. How does one do that? Because from the people that we've talked to and that we know, a lot of their um, perspectives come from travel and different cultures and different things, and it makes them a better professional, a better person, right? How does one do that, you know, on purpose? Well, I think that it's all about, you know, um, setting intentions and goals um, and, and really taking initiative, you know, I mean, you know, the, one of the most important lessons I learned early on in business and life is like, just show up, you know, you show up on someone's doorstep at their office versus sending them a letter or an email or now a text message, like it gets people's attention. And some of the, some of the most important things in life are about just taking the initiative and showing up and, um, not waiting for opportunities to come to you. Um, okay, so so going back to the sub stories, uh, after you sold the outdoor advertising business, uh, and then you did the Amazing Race, what happens next? What do you what do you do? Well, I mean, I was I was fascinated. I mean, this was you know, gosh, I don't know how many years ago this was. This was I was twenty five, so I think two thousand. Yeah, eighteen years ago. So eighteen years ago, reality TV was just really taking off. I mean, there were only a few shows. There was Survivor. There was Big Brother, Amazing Race, a couple others. But I was fascinated by having this, what we call 15 minutes of fame or what Andy Warhol called 15 minutes of fame. And it really, and it was longer than 15 minutes. It was really like for weeks afterwards, you know, people were like recognizing us in airports. We were getting invited to go to like Will Smith's kid's birthday party because he loved the show. Like, I mean, there's just these random things. And I was seeing that, you know, we were in the tabloids and like all this, like, like a real celebrity. And what I recognized was, is that when a reality show is done airing, the network just wants to immediately move on to the next show, the next cast. But the audience is still in love with these people. And so I had this idea to create a, a cable channel that would be all reality all the time and really focus on kind of following these stars after their shows, because that would be really inexpensive content to create. You already had a built-in audience. You had fans. Um, and so I partnered with the founder of E! Entertainment Channel. Um, and we worked on launching this reality channel. And we worked on it and worked on it really hard for a couple of years, raised some money. I put a bunch of money in myself. Ultimately, uh, Rupert Murdoch and Fox launched a competing channel called Fox Reality. And ultimately, they just kind of crushed us. Um, and so that was probably one of the biggest public failures and financial failures of my entrepreneurial life. Um, but I learned some great lessons through it. And, and, and how did you tell us like how you ended up connecting with Larry Namer, who started e-entertainment and how you guys partnered up? Did, like, was it something that you just contacted him and pitched him or did he already know about you? And you sort of just discussed it with them. How, how did that happen? No, I, I just cold called him. You know, I, 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 you know, researched online who are the founders of these channels. I recognized that E was a very similar format to what I was thinking of doing. He, you know, was retired from the cable channel business at that time, but still had a consulting business. 
Um, so I just, you know, goes cold called him, set up an appointment, and he luckily agreed to meet with me for a few minutes. And I pitched him my idea, and and uh, and he liked it. Why do you think you weren't able to continue it even when Fox launched? Because I mean, you know, Pat asked you about the whole Clear Channel thing earlier and about competition from these bigger companies. Why wasn't it something that you could have just done and still competed? Yeah. So this is a great lesson and it's one of the great business lessons I learned in my life. And that is if you're going to launch a business, be very careful launching a business where ultimately a very small number of people or companies can decide your fate. So in the cable business, your fate, whether you can launch or not, has nothing to do with the people who will actually watch your shows has nothing to do with the advertisers that ultimately would generate your revenue. It has everything to do, or at least used to, not as much anymore, with the 10 cable operators in our country that control basically the bandwidth of what goes into people's homes. And so I had a great idea. People wanted the channel. I had advertisers begging to be advertising with us, but I couldn't get it on the networks, especially once Fox said they were going to do it, because Fox could afford to actually pay the networks for space the same way you might pay a grocery store for space and, and their shelves. So what I learned in that is I would never launch a business again that had only a few key decision makers that could decide my fate. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen all these amazing D2C e-commerce companies and fashion and everything else pop up is now the customer gets to decide your success, not the department store. Right. Right. And it's one of those things where I imagine like, you know, obviously with telecommunications and what are, I don't know, water and power, like maybe some of these like more traditional industries that have these, like you said, these big market leaders that are sort of, it's like a sort of a, not a monopoly, but it's monopolistic, you know, where it, it doesn't allow income, you know, new incoming, you know, startups to, to come in and like play, you know, and, and, and I imagine there, there's, there will be some sort of disruption, but uh, it's a great lesson because I think it is. It does make it a lot more difficult to start a business unless you're working on disrupting it and taking people away from what, exactly what they're doing. Uh, it's it's really difficult. Totally. Yeah. So you kind of run into this position now where you have this failed business. Are you at all unmotivated, or do you? I don't know. Do you feel like, damn, like after all this time, like you know? nothing was able to come of it or were you just kind of motivated to go on and do the next thing? No, I, I had a series of weeks, if not months where I was pretty unmotivated, pretty frustrated, sad. I, mean, I had to let go 40 employees, you know, uh, lost a lot of money. Um, I was shaken. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you know, as I said earlier and using the analogy of a romantic relationship, you know, the best way to get over a breakup is to find another person, <laughs> um, you know, and so that's what happened. I, I I was kind of wallowing in the failure of that channel, and I was at a barbecue and talking to this 15 year old boy about his driver's ed experience, and I just had like this light bulb pop off and be like, man, here's an industry that has had no innovation in like decades. I mean, nothing has changed since I did it 20 years ago. And now with technology and online learning and all these other things, like this is exciting. And so I just got excited about it the same way you'd get excited about maybe a new girlfriend and then you forget your heart rate. And so you launched what? You launched another company? Yeah. So this is called a Driver's Ed Direct. 
And uh, basically, it was the first online driver's education company in California. Uh, and it had two other very important, I would say, marketing hooks. The first was we were the only driver's ed company to use hybrid uh, vehicles. We used Priuses. That was the first vehicle that came out that was a hybrid. And so we were able to educate people on the advantages of a hybrid vehicle. And that was kind of cool for kids to get to ride in and participate in versus the typical old you know, kind of, you know, outdated cars that they would learn in. And then probably most importantly is I only hired uh, models and actors and actresses for driving teachers. So I hired people who were super hot. And um, and what do teenage kids care about? <laughs> hot chicks and guys. And it is right when MySpace took off. So everyone wanted a picture with their hot driver's ed teacher on their MySpace page. And so it was great because these actors and models needed part-time work. I paid them really well. I gave them flexible schedules. And before you know it, every you know teenager in LA wanted to do our driver's ed because they could do it with an Abercrombie and Fitch model. And, uh, and it took off. I'll tell you, I, I definitely didn't use your Same, your I was about company. to say, <laughs> where was this? Yeah, because and I remember I failed my first test because I had a dude named Basil who taught me how to drive? Yeah. Spelled Basil. Yeah, uh, nice guy. But you know, <laughs> if I was a hot, I probably would have been a little bit motivated to pass. You know, yeah. the first time, or maybe not to fail a couple of times taking a lesson. So not a not a not yeah. a. Bad it's a good recurring business. It's not a bad business model. So you what you sold that business too? Yeah. So that was a fun one because I had this kind of crazy idea. But I also knew that like you kind of had to be on an, be an insider to get the permits to do that type of business. Obviously, it's kids' lives at stake. So you can't just start a driver's ed business as easy as you can start, you know, a shoe company even. Um, and so I, I worked with some amazing, uh, two amazing men who had been in the driver's ed business for a long time. They've been doing it in the traditional classroom setting. And I brought the innovative idea and then they brought their permits and together we did it. And after about two years, I had the idea for Tom's. And then once Tom started to take off, I realized I couldn't do both. And so I sold them my shares and actually used that capital to help grow Tom's. Yeah. So let's talk about Tom's. Um, I know you went to Argentina. Tell us about that trip. Tell us what you saw and what inspired the idea for Tom's. Yeah, I mean, I was you know down in Argentina, um, and I saw a lot of kids uh, living in pretty intense poverty situations. Um, one of the things specifically I noticed is many of them were not wearing shoes, um, and uh, I, uh, I, at the same time, I had kind of seen a lot of the polo players and their girlfriends wearing these shoes that were very unique. They looked more like a slipper to me than a shoe, but they were warm and they were very stylish down there, and you know, like a lot of ideas, two ideas kind of came together. And that was, there's all these kids that can't afford shoes. There's this really cool shoe that I've never seen. You know, what if I sold this shoe to people who can afford it and then gave an extra pair to a child that can't? Um, that would be a fun project. This was the first time I ever launched something that I actually did not see it as a business. And it obviously became a very big business. I called it a project. Um, it wasn't a nonprofit, but it really didn't think it would make money. So I just called it the Shoes for Tomorrow Project, um, and it was my idea of using my business skills to build something to help people. And um, you know, it wasn't until you know about six months to a year into the project that I realized that this could be a profitable business and help people. And that's when you know it became a business. Yeah, I remember, and I, and I remember you know uh, hearing about 
toms and the whole one for one model and and sort of the criticism you 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 heard was like well how how is this going to be a viable business model back then when you're first starting you know it's like how is this sure. going to work where you're producing two shoes for for one and so for you like how because it wasn't you weren't approaching it as a business at what point did you try to figure out the economics of it uh, and and how did you figure that out yeah it's interesting the economics figured themselves out so for the first six months to a year i didn't really see it as a viable business and so i saw it more as a philanthropic fun project but as we started to grow and scale all of a sudden our costs came way down. So, you know, making shoes in people's garages, which is what we were originally doing, is not very cost efficient. Once you can place orders of 10,000 or 20,000 pairs at a factory, all of a sudden your costs go down 70% and now you've got a lot of margin and a lot of profitability. So really I didn't do anything except follow the demand and the demand create efficiency that ultimately create profitability. So I'm curious, when you sold the Driver's Ed company and then started this project, was, I mean, were you already financially secure? Was the goal to not, you know, necessarily make money? Because a lot of times, you know, when it people was, are starting yeah. a business, the goal is to make money, something good, sure. but, you know, they're not usually in a position of financial security. Yeah, no, I, I was, I was definitely not in a financial secure place, but I also wasn't living paycheck to paycheck. So I had some money in the bank that if for a year I did this project and helped a bunch of kids and had fun, I could do that and then figure out my next thing a year from now. So it was a little bit in between. I mean, right. I was, I, it was almost, almost look at Tom's in that, that time period, almost like an entrepreneurial sabbatical, even though it turned out to be the most demanding entrepreneurial experience. But I was just having fun. I wanted to help people. I wanted to do something different. And, um, and I had a little bit of cash flow that would allow me to do so, but not enough that I was by any means financially secure. And yeah, and going back to like, you know, you mentioned at, at, at scale, obviously the economics makes sense. But when you're just getting started, at, you know, with something like this, how did you approach it? Like, did you have to find an investor who had to, you know, put money in to, to manufacture these shoes and get them out there? Or was it completely self-funded? Like, how did you go about those early early days? Yeah, it was totally self-funded. I, I, it cost me about $5,000 to make the initial run of shoes. And then I would sell them and then I would make more because I would get paid right up front. And then I'd make more and then I'd sell them and then I'd make more. And yeah, I was totally self-funded. And actually Tom's was completely self-funded until 2014. I never had an investor until I sold half of it to Bain Capital. So that's one of the reasons why I was able to have such a liquidity event was that I didn't have to pay any investors back. Do you think that there was any, or do you think that now there is any sort of correlation between building a business for a purpose rather than for capital and the correlation to how much money that business makes? Meaning, you know, you started Tom's for a good purpose, to give back. Yeah. And it ended up becoming a very financially, um, a, a financial success, right? Is there a correlation there? Should more people, you know, focus on that piece of purpose as opposed to a business for capital only? Yeah, I mean, I think we are very much a case study of how having a purpose and a mission is financially accretive um, versus a cost. Um, you know, I think number one is you can create um, incredible uh, evangelists for your brand. Um, because they believe in what you're doing and that reduces your marketing cost. Uh, you know, number two is the loyalty of repeat purchasing because they 
are part of a of something bigger than just buying a thing also helps with driving sales. Um, third thing is I think you can attract and retain employees for lower cost and, and motivate them at higher levels of productivity because there's a mission. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a huge believer in that, um, you know, from an ethical, moral, you know, spiritual standpoint, it's a great idea to incorporate uh, a purpose in your business. But also just from a pure, you know, profitability standpoint, I think when done authentically, it can have a huge impact. I mean, you guys really became, you know, you use the word case study, like social entrepreneurship. I mean, you hear about this all the time now. Every company almost now that launches, you know, focuses on social entrepreneurship. You know, why do you think we didn't see a lot of that before, Tom's? You know, why wasn't that, why is that something that's only happened in the last decade and a half? I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know, the sharing economy. I mean, all of these major shifts in the way that people think happen usually because of one idea that catches fire, you know, and um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we needed any special technology or special insight to do what we did. We just challenged something that for hundreds of years had not been challenged. And that is business can do good and be philanthropic and make money. And so I think it was just a matter of, changing people's mentality. I also think that culturally something was happening around 2007. You know, there was a financial crisis. A lot of people lost their savings. They lost trust in corporate America. They were angry. Um, So we tapped into that, you know, kind of radical spirit of here's a business that's not just about making more money, but helping people. And that tapped into people's love for the brand. Um, But yeah, I mean, if I look back on it, you know, I do with total humility, it's just it, it almost feels like I was used as a vessel to create, to bring this idea to culture versus I had the idea myself. Like it's too big of an idea. It's affected right. you know, the history of business in such a bigger way than just me and Tom's. Um, but yeah, I think it was just like many ideas that have changed uh, industries and business. It's just, it's, it's time had come. Do you think, do you think in your, in your opinion, like business uh, could be a solution for a lot of the, environmental or societal or uh human issues that we're dealing with today like take for example like homelessness right that's it's a big issue especially here in california um is do you think that business can solve all these problems or or do you think it's going to be business working with government or vice versa i don't know like knowing what you know a thousand percent i think business has a role to play in all the social injustices in the world because most of the social injustices in the world are a derivative of economic disparity and greed uh, and corruption. And so I don't think business is the only factor. I think business along with, you know, good government, along with, you know, um, good philanthropy. But I think business always has a seat at the table. Tell us a little bit about, you know, when you were getting started with Tom's, what were some of the early maybe challenges or something that you didn't expect to happen that you guys had to deal with to get it really to the point where everyone knew about it and everyone, you know, sort of came across someone that perhaps had a pair or bought one themselves. Like, you know, that we always hear about those success stories, but tell us, tell us a little bit about those early challenges that you had. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing with Tom's and I think it's very unique is that none of the challenges were marketing sales awareness oriented all the challenges were supply chain because i had no experience making shoes and most of my early employees had no experience making shoes so it was just one supply chain problem after another for eight years 
Mm. I'm curious as a leader, you know, how are you as a leader, right? You know, you talked early on in the episode about, you know, being an individual sport player, right? You play tennis for most of your life and, you know, you really have to depend on yourself for that. There's no one that's going to help you hit that backhand or get that lob or whatever, right? Like it's just you, but yeah. How did that translate into becoming a a leader of people of working in a team? Because look, at the end of the day, Sure, you're a visionary. You have all these great ideas, but you can't do it alone. Maybe you can get to one ah, of point of the story by yourself, but then you got to get a team to really push you forward. Talk to us about how that was like for you and how that is like for you now. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's such a relevant topic because with Made For, it's the first time I have a partner. You know, my partner, Pat Dossett, was a Navy SEAL for nine years. I have partners who are scientists at Stanford and Harvard. And, you know, like I am just one part of the team of Made For. And and it's really fun, frankly, to have teammates. You know, um, in the SEALs, they always talk about teammates. And so Pat uses the word teammate a lot. And I feel like I'm part of a team. Now, there's certain things that I only can do for Made For, and there's certain things that only Pat can do, and definitely things only the neuroscientist at Stanford can do. But um, but being part of a team is really fun. And so um, I would say before Made For, uh, as a leader, when I was kind of me and only me as the owner and the driver, my leadership style was um, one that I co-opted the term from Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, and that is MBA. So not MBA like you think of business school, but management by absence. (laughs) And so what I found was the best way I could be a leader was to get the fuck out of the office. Like whenever I was having, whenever I was around too much, I was causing problems. But if I gave them an idea, a plan, you know, a, a big idea, and then I got out And I was selling and evangelizing and meeting customers and doing that and let everyone in the office really manage themselves. That's what I think allowed Tom's especially uh, to grow so fast and for people to feel so invested in it. You know, and even with Made For now, as a teammate, I'm not in L.A. where the company is based. I'm in Wyoming. And so I'm doing what I can do. But we have a great leader and a day to day manager and my partner, Pat. Um, so it's just different. I think different times of my life, different businesses. And I think there's advantages to both to being a sole entrepreneur and then also being a partner and a teammate. Yeah. And before we get into, to made for, um, tell us, uh, you know, what, what led to you leaving Tom's in 2014? Like what was, what was the situation? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I had, you know, been at it for, uh, you know, eight years um, I had no investors, so I was not only the only founder, but I was the only financial investor. So now we were writing major checks. The company was about a half a billion in sales. So, you know, I mean, imagine managing your personal checkbook that way. Um, and, uh, and, and my, my wife at the time was having our first child. And so I was just kind of burnt out. I needed a break. I wanted to have someone else besides myself to have some of the uh, pressure and responsibility. Um, and, uh, and I recognized that it was an opportunity for me to have a more balanced life. And so I sold half the company in 2014, hired a great CEO who was an amazing man who I loved working with and loved working for. Um, and, and then I started investing more time in 
you know, hobbies that I'd always wanted to do, being a dad, you know, and uh, investing in other social entrepreneurs. And that was great for a couple of years. And then I really hit uh, a tough patch in 2016, 2017. And largely now that I reflect on it is I had just put so much of my energy as so many founders and entrepreneurs listening to this podcast do uh, into their business that I had really neglected some of the basic physical and mental hygiene, so to speak. Um, in short, there were certain things that I wasn't doing that other people were doing, and that was causing them to live uh, in a more flourished uh, state and in a higher state of well-being. And so I found myself depressed for the first time. I didn't have energy to get out of bed. I didn't know what my next thing was. I was just kind of like I had everything that I thought I ever wanted, but everything that I ever wanted was all external, and I hadn't developed the capacity control the internal aspects of my life that would give me that deep well-being and, and feeling of fulfillment. And it was frankly kind of scary. Um, it was a scary time because I was only, you know, 40 years old and I felt like I thought I had the rest of my life ahead of me, but I was constantly just looking in the rearview mirror and I had for the first time in my life lacked the energy and the motivation uh, that I had for the you know, previous 15 years as an entrepreneur. And so. Um, it was a scary time. And, you know, but like kind of tying into that, I know I remember at one point you said something or you've said it a couple of times about how you need to take care of yourself before you take care of others. Right. And I'm sure yes. that that's a big portion of why made for, you know, even began. But beyond that, I mean, you've really taken care of a lot of people. Right. Like, you know, yeah. through business, through Tom's. I mean, I know you had received an award for, you know, being involved in global public health. And that's something that you're truly, you know, passionate about. But why was it that you put others before yourself until you hit that point, right? Until that you realized, yeah, I need to do something about myself too, you know? You know, I think, I mean, a part of it is, is, and I don't know if this goes back to the early days of tennis and, you know, being competitive and liking to win and liking people to clap when you hit a good shot and liking applause and public recognition and people to say you're a good person. All that kind of caught fire, especially with Tom's. And it was it was uh, intoxicating. I mean, you know, being on the cover of magazines and having Bill Clinton tell you you're one of the most interesting entrepreneurs he's ever met or getting awards from Harvard and public health. I mean, all that public acclaim was intoxicating. And I say that without any ego and just being honest of like, I wasn't prepared for that. And that gave me a lot of fuel to keep driving and driving and driving. Not to mention, I was going on, you know, one to two giving trips a year to places like Ethiopia, or Guatemala, or even, you know, the, you know, kind of really, you know, poverty stricken areas in rural Tennessee here in the United States. <clears throat> and seeing these kids being so happy with these shoes and the joy that their parents had and the hugs and the love we received when we gave the shoes, it was also equally as intoxicating. So I think all that positive stimulation and feedback allowed me to run really hard without taking care of myself for a long time. And then that's why when all that kind of stopped, when I kind of sold half a Tom's and started living a more private life, that um, I think that's part of what allowed me and made me kind of look internally and kind of see like, wow, like I was depending on the rat race of all this stuff to keep me going. And now that the music has stopped and I'm still and I'm calm and I'm 
a dad and I'm kind of experiencing a more normal life, if you will, I realized like I didn't have that stimulation to keep me going. So I had to find it some other way. And that's really when I started looking to um, not just like reading a book here or a podcast here, but like what had science uh, proven really contributes to one's well-being. I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard and a lot of people listening have heard about the blue zones uh, in the planet. And the blue zones, if you haven't heard of it, is where people, the most centurions live, where people who live to be 100 and greater are most likely to live. And there's one in Japan, there's one in Costa Rica. And, you know, and, and so I think that book was, you know, kind of the beginning of showing that there are some very specific things you can do to live longer. And it very much very similar. What I found, you know, is there's some very specific things you can do to live happier. And I wasn't doing a lot of those things. And so I went to science and to laboratories and specifically neuroscientists to learn what could I do differently to live in a higher state of well-being. I love that. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, you know, it's this sort of existential crisis that people talk about where you kind of reach a point in your life where you're like, what do I exist for? What, what am I, what's my purpose? Like why, what, what makes me, what, what will make me happy or live longer and that kind of stuff. And a lot of people sort of dwell on it or maybe they rely on medications or things like that yeah. to get better. But you, you kind of turn back again business and like, how can I create a solution that uh, could help me solve my problems, but most likely other people have the same problems that I do. So it could be hopefully something bigger. So, um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what sort of went into creating made for, like, what did you see? What did you find out? And what, how did you come up with the solution? Yeah. I mean, I think just starting with the name, like, is exactly what you said. Like, I think at some point in our lives, we all ask ourselves, what am I made for? And that's where the name was born out of was me asking that question and Pat asking that question ourselves. And, you know, and, 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 and kind of on that path of answering the question, what am I made for? You also dive into what am I made of? You know, what are the things that, that contribute to my well-being on a daily basis? And the most exciting and challenging thing that I found um, is that it actually wasn't any major interventions or biohacks or any crazy new program I need to do. It was very basic things like developing an optimal, you know, um, way to sleep at night. It was, you know, staying hydrated in a better way and understanding how hydration affects your mood and your energy levels, especially in the afternoon. It was understanding like what, how you're surrounding the physical clutter in your office or in your home, how that can create stress in your life. You know, I mean, all these very simple things that scientifically have been proven is what I started experimenting with. So I spent a year basically experimenting with these very basic practices and habits that had been proven to have positive effect on people's lives and kind of combining them and stacking them in different ways to see what would give me the most optimal benefit. And the great thing was, is I went from a state of being kind of depressed and having less energy and less, you know, hopeful for the future and digitally distracted all the time and probably not even the best dad to within, you know, six or eight months of integrating these very simple things in my life, feeling better than I've ever felt before. And that's when I knew that we need to start a business. I mean, it, it, you know, just like some other things we've talked about, I didn't really set out made like to create a business, I set out to feel better myself. And when these practices were having such a positive impact on myself, then I realized, gosh, we have a huge opportunity to help people in this country 
you know, live better and feel better. And they don't have to do anything crazy. I mean, these are basic things we can teach them. And that's how we developed the Made For program was to really teach these basic practices, you know, one practice a month for 10 months so that other people could experience um, a state of well-being that I experienced for the first time in my life after I started doing them. One of the things that, you know, we see in these blue zones and, and the book Geeky Guy does a good job of sort of diving into this is this concept of flow. And, you know, yeah. these folks who tend to live longer and live healthier lives, they, they, they're they working on things that bring them fulfillment. And it might be something super small, something very like a small part of a bigger process, like whatever it might be. But um, and I think that that's definitely something that a lot of people, especially here in the U.S., lack, which is working on something, spending their time on something that they truly are fulfilled by. And it's not just, you know, about making money or, or, or this or that. It's, it's something much bigger than that. And this whole flow concept is, you know, that, that feeling that you have when you're working on something, you just forget time exists. Right. And, and, and so yeah. is that something that's also built into me for, which is helping people find something that they are fulfilled by and like, you know, a purpose. It, it, Exactly. But we build up to that. That's towards the end of the program. And the reason we build up to that is another really important concept in flow. uh, If you study it from a scientific period is is also this word that's so important called momentum. (laughs) You know, momentum is what ultimately creates flow. And so what this has been especially important during COVID-19 is our members have some very basic things that they ground every day in. It gives them momentum. So no matter what uncertainty, challenges, crises that are thrown at them, message from the media, they're more grounded and they have some positive momentum going into their day, uh, into their week. And that gives them a better opportunity to get into that flow state, which often comes from working on something that gives you fulfillment. So yes, one of the major things that we help people with towards the end of the program is answering that question, what am I made for? really establishing your core values, understanding your true north and what can get you into a flow state in work or your personal life. But before that, we work on some very basic things so that you can have momentum in your daily life as well. So Blake, I, you know, you mentioned it's a 10-month program. Each month you get something new. Can you give us an example of what somebody would get you know, on month one and month two, just for our listeners who you know, sure. are just curious about the company and how it works? Yeah, so, well, basically every month you get a box in the mail that is a made for kit. And one of the things that's really unique about made for is it's completely analog. There's no digital app. There's no device. I mean, there's nothing that you need that is digital at all to do the program that's not in that kit. And in that kit, there are three things. There is one, all the consolidated science from one of our universities that we've worked with or one of the scientists consolidate into a 20 minute read. You know, we really looked at like, what's the least amount of time that we can ask someone to sit down and focus and read something to really understand the science in a way that they can apply to their life. The second thing is a physical tool that we have designed to help you not only learn, but sustain this new habit. And then the third thing is the monthly challenge. And that is something that you will work on for 21 days during the month. And it has a little bracelet to remind you of your commitment to the challenge and ways to stay accountable. So using that framework, which is every month, I'll give you an example of a month. So one of the months, which is very basic, but absolutely fundamental is the hydration month. You know, we did a lot of research around the effect. If someone even gets 
dehydrated by one to two percent. I mean, most people would never even know what a one percent or two percent change in hydration feels like until they get really tuned into their hydration. But it can affect your sleep. It can affect your mood. It definitely affects your energy level. I mean, I used to take double espresso shots in the afternoon to keep powering through. Now I have my made for bottle and I chug two or three of them and have the same effect. So hydration month, what happens is you get all the science around hydration. We debunk a lot of the myths around hydration as well. And then you get this bottle that has a way to keep track of how many bottles you drink during the day. It has these very specific beads, almost like prayer beads that you slide over every time you finish a bottle. The neuroscience shows you that you get a dopamine hit every time you move one of those beads. And at the end of the day, when you've moved all the beads over, you really get a nice reward and you get to experience how you feel being properly hydrated. And so there's a challenge about how much you'll drink with that tool that's there. So the framework is always, you know, teach people in the basic, most simplest way to learn something, give them a tool that they can interact with, and then give them a reward at the end of every day and every month. And that's how you form new neural pathways that allow you to sustain a new habit. I'm curious what, I mean, I know you talk about, you know, shifting your behavior. Are there specific behaviors that we're trying to shift here with this, this program, or is it just a bunch of different behaviors that you're trying to shift? There's one macro concept, and it uh, was coined by a, a woman who wrote a great book about it named Carol Dweck, and it's what we call the growth mindset. So the macro concept of mm-hmm. what we're doing, by giving you 10 different experiences, because some of them aren't things you do every day. Like One month might be an experience that we help curate for you that creates a real transformation. But these 10 experiences right. together create the ability for your brain and your in your mind to really go from being in a fixed mindset of like, oh, I'm 43, this is what I do, this is how I am, to I'm 75 and I can learn to dance or I can start a new company or I can you know get out of a bad relationship and start a new one. So it's really about changing that mindset, which is what I think you guys would agree holds so many people back. And so we do that through these 10 different interventions. Yeah, it's a feeling that I'm sure crosses a lot of people's minds is once you get a little bit older, you know, even now, these days people, I'm like, I'm 28 and I, I think about it all the time too, is like, damn, like, you know, um, I wish I did that or I wish I did this, but it's like, even if you're getting into your 40s, 50s, 60s, even like it's nothing's ever too late. You still have a lot of life to live. So why do you, why would you continue to dwell on what you've done in the past as opposed to, like you said, that growth mindset of being able to to do new things and and find new ways to be fulfilled. Is there any sort and, of and community that, aspect to this, like the yeah, the made for community? And sorry, yeah, you could sure also so the, touch on Pat's point. Yeah, no, no, and actually, your question and touches on what I want to say too. Um, so I answer your question. So the only digital experience with made for is the community. We don't make you don't have to be part of the community, but I think 86% of our members are part of it. And so what we do is every month we launch a new class. So let's say you sign up, you know, today we're in July, you would be in the August class. And so there's typically about 500 people in each class. Um, We try to keep them to a manageable number. And then we create a private Facebook group just for that class. And so me and Pat and the Mm -hmm. scientists will get on the Facebook group and answer questions, people share their experiences, et cetera. 
um, in that group. And that's what helps with the community aspect and staying accountable. The other thing we found is that the, um, the effectiveness or the, I guess, the success of people's transformations also is somewhat connected to do they do it with someone that they know? So do they do it with a best friend? Do they do it with coworkers? Do they do it with a spouse? Like that has been a found, that makes it more fun, I think, because you're not doing it in isolation. So that's important. And then to the community question you asked goes back to, you know, this mindset shift and what people do with Made For. And what I've been, probably the most exciting thing that I've experienced is people doing things with their lives that have nothing to do with our program or the 10 things that they've always wanted to do, but they never did until they did made for their, and their mind started changing. You know, whether that is losing 30 pounds, which weight loss is not part of the program at all, but we've had a lot of people lose that weight that they've never been able to lose or learning to dance or changing careers or, you know, I mean, these things are happening, which have nothing to do with our program, but it's the result of the mind shift change that we're working so hard to create for people. Right. Cause I can imagine there isn't like a one size fits all. It's sort of like you want to arm people with the tools necessary to go and figure out what that is for them. And everyone's different and everyone has different things that they would enjoy and, and would bring out the best in them. Right. And so, um, I love that, but I'm curious, um, made for, made for aside and just like all your businesses aside, what, do you have this like overarching goal, like for your life, like something that you want to really like at the end of your life, like if I look back and I did this, I can die happy. I would say for me, the overarching goal more than ever is to be present in every moment. Um, that can sound like a cliche, but what I found is, is like we've said, the past doesn't exist anymore. The future is only in our mind. All I can be is fully present in this moment, whether that's talking with you guys or as soon as I get done going and jumping on the trampoline with my kids. I mean, that is where the beauty of life is. And so everything that I'm doing now is to help me be more grounded in the present moment. You know, I'm curious real quick about Made For as well. You know, with a lot of businesses, they're always talking about the target audience. You know, who are you tailoring this company for or this product or service for? But, you know, as you were talking and as I kind of think about it, Made For is really for everybody. I mean, you also mentioned that. Has that made it difficult or more exciting to run the business, like the business end of it, to find customers um i think what's interesting about made for in some ways it's kind of like tom's is i feel like customers are kind of finding us based on friends experiences or, or maybe hearing about it on a podcast it really is something that we're finding that is happening because people have reached a stage in their life where they want to create a positive change they want to do something they know someone that did the program and they saw a positive benefit in their life and so they want to sign up so Really, I believe in a lot of entrepreneurial ventures, you're better off to kind of grow organically and slower at first. So you build that real base of evangelists and then they do so much of the heavy lifting for you. And I know that, you know, we are lucky enough to have a code to offer our, you know, our listeners. I know they gave it to us right before the podcast. Yeah, we'll include it in the description. Yeah, so it's founder hour. So right. it's 20% off of yep. the entire checkout process or check out of the, you know, of the product. So we'll also say it in the beginning of the episode as well, but hopefully people that got to this point will also hear it now and can check out and uh, it's at getmadefor.com. Um, and, you know, I'm excited to, you know, learn more about it as well and kind of talk to our friends as well about it and see what they think. You know, we, every time we do an episode, we always have a conversation with our friends about the product and the service and they always give their feedback, which is really cool as well. 
Uh, so, you know, we love what you've built and, you know, you've been, you're such a great example for folks who have these crazy wild ideas, but they actually just did it, you know? And, uh, yeah. you know, I really hope that people that are listening, take out, take out something out of this that just try it, you know, succeed, fail, succeed, fail. It doesn't really matter. You know, you're 43 years old and you've built five plus companies and I'm sure there'll be more to come. You know, it's a journey, you know, there's going to be some lows, there's going to be some highs. I know we've talked to so many entrepreneurs, there's a lot more lows than there are highs. Um, and For I think sure. that's what a lot of anxiety and depression is caused by is a lot of uncertainty. Um, but I think you need to embrace that uncertainty and just, you know, like you said, grow, just keep growing with everything you do. And, you know, having that mindset, I think is really, really effective as even just as an individual, even if you're not an entrepreneur. So uh, thank you for your story. And, you know, hopefully we can stay in touch and see where this company goes. And, you know, I, I guess we got to visit Wyoming one day because a lot of yeah, people I'm in Wyoming and go golfing. I love to play golf and it's beautiful here in the summer. So this has been really fun, guys. You know, it's really rare that I kind of get to go through memory lane of all the businesses. And, um, you know, everyone typically just wants to talk about Tom's and made for. So I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of go way back and kind of unpack it. Uh, it just makes me have a deep feeling of gratitude to you guys and to this, this life that I've been given. So it's been a beautiful uh, time with you all and let's stay in touch. You got it, Blake. Thank you. Thank you.